Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 113, and we're wrapping up the series with the final days of Southwest Africa as the country became Namibia. Now we need to go over the events in early April 1989 that almost put paid to the peace agreement. As you heard last week, Swapo leader Sam Niyome had ordered his military wing planned to invade Namibia starting on April 1st. We spent time last week hearing about the diplomatic fallout. Now for some details about what happened on the ground. Constable Saki Yusta, for example, group leader of Kufut Zulu 5 Juliet, who was based on high ground overlooking the Kuneni River, a hotspot for Swapo crossings west of Reokana. There'd be no reports of anything untoward overnight, the last night of March, but that was not surprising because the night had been dark, no moon, excellent for anyone moving around, and at first light, Eustace's radio crackled with the report that Spur had been found of around 50 insurgents. Eustace thought they were mistaken, and went to check the signs himself. It was true, so he reported this to Rokana police station. The war was supposed to be over, so he didn't want to make himself look foolish. He didn't want to appear jittery. Just in case, he called his men together and headed off to track the spoor around 15 kilometers west of Ryokana, and it was clear a large number of insurgents had indeed crossed. Close to map reference VL0873, there were chevron boots, swapu, and some were even barefoot. Ashikati was contacted. General Dreyer was in command, and Inspector Nick Pienz, who was commander of Kaukaland Police, radioed Yusta back. Mobile Air Operations Head Captain Keith Freyer was called in and the police asked for a Bosbok spotter plane to be dispatched to Opur, so Pienz could go see for himself what was going on. He asked Freya to organize a few Alouette gunships. Why should I put gunships on standby? asked Freya. There's been no infiltration. But there has, answered Police Comms Control Sergeant Rasti Aras. At five minutes past eight, another unit, Zulu Hotel, commanded by Constable Dani Fari, reported they'd found tracks of insurgents near the others. Most of Zulu's team, including Yankee Hotel and Oscar, were on their way to chase the insurgents already, when one of the members radioed back, April Fool, April Fool, the whole lot of us. He was cut short by a warrant officer, Fana Durant. Negative, negative, he said sternly. This is no April Fool's joke, this is for real. The Alouettes were ordered into the air at Undunga. It was Saturday morning. Two were on standby, at least one more was needed. Most of the commanders they contacted thought it was a joke. And even less of a joke was the fact that because it was now peace, or supposed to be, the 20mm cannons had been removed from the Alouettes and sent to Grootfontein. A C-130 transport flew the cannon back, but there wasn't much ammunition. Sergeant Dupi Duplessis of Zulu Victor and car commanders, Constables Frank-Jan, Fanny Larue and Dirk Spies, rendezvoused with Saki Joester of Juliet 5 Juliet. Also present was second-in-command Constable Stoney Steenkamp. All were now looking at the crossing point of the 50 insurgents on the southern bank of the Kuneni River. The sand trackers began following the spoor, and after a while, a 40-meter-long nylon rope was found, along with a few boots under a bush. Swapo usually roped their men together for safety while crossing the rivers. Most could not swim. It was also useful to rope the men together, just in case anyone was grabbed by a crocodile in the dark. The others would feel this and come to his aid. About half a kilometre south of the river's floodplain, the ground rose quite steeply towards the mountains. This is rugged country. From here on, the security forces had to follow on foot. Eustace sent in his special constables led by Sergeant Upuratena Zako. Eight special constables in total. 
The Zulu Five team members regarded themselves as the best of the best at mountain work, all from Upur, and all preferred fighting on foot than from the vehicles. After an hour of searching, Sergeant Zarko reported that they'd entered a ravine and he'd stopped. It was dangerous to go further. Time to call in the backup Alouette from Ruokana. Perhaps they could also leapfrog a second team in 10 kilometers further south into the hills to spot the infiltrators. The Alouette was duly dispatched with strict instructions to avoid ground support firing. It picked up three members of Kufut, including Sergeant Dupi Duplessis, then headed south to an outcrop that Duplessis thought was a possible hiding place. After dropping the three, the Alouette returned to the vehicle lager, picked up three more and dropped them as well. Meanwhile, groups of mountain specialists were being contacted throughout Ruakana. Most of them thought it was a waste of time. Back at the drop-off, the chopper pilot spotted what he thought were logs in the bush, but the other members on board told him that was Swapo in ambush mode and reported that to Sergeant Zaku, saying they were lying in the gully directly to his front. Roger that, he replied. Seconds later, RPG and AK-47 fire erupted. Swapo knew they'd been spotted and they were aiming at the Alouette. Despite the no-fire command, pilot Captain Slade asked for permission to return fire but was told by Captain Keith Fryer to avoid firing back. Instead, the Alouette dipped away, surviving the first rounds of RPG rockets and small arms fire. Other SWAT units began streaming into the area. On the mountain, Kufut commanders described that a small war had broken out. Swapu was firing downhill and missing, the police firing back. The insurgents fled, heading towards the northern slope of the hill and were then spotted by Captain Slade in the Alouette. Still, the police on board couldn't fire. What was going on, they asked. Swapu was supposed to be moving north inside Angola, towards bases, where the UN would be counting them and disarming the fighters. Instead, here they were, inside Namibia, shooting up the security forces. By the evening of the 1st, Sergeant Hermann Krobler radioed to say they'd captured an insurgent dressed in civilian clothes, carrying a Makarov pistol. He was Philippus Hanawa, and explained how he had infiltrated the border near Beacon 3-0. When they saw the police activity, he and two others had changed from their uniforms into civilian gear. So the SWATF had 25 vehicles which set off in an extended two-line formation at around midday. But the security forces had a problem because the heavy weapons had been removed from the Caspers, so most of the vehicles were left without crucial machine guns. At 1300, the trackers warned that signs on the ground pointed to a possible ambush being set up by Swapo. Twenty minutes later, they were proved right, when Swapo opened fire with RPG-7s and anti-tank rifle grenades, as well as mortars aiming at the Caspers and from close range. Six Caspers were hit, causing many casualties. The UN peace plan had called for all heavy weapons to be stripped from the vehicles. Now Kufut was caught. It was fight or flight with light weapons, and fight was the only choice. The remaining 19 Caspers and armoured vehicles tore into the ambush zone, the men firing from the ports. The Swapper ambush was strung out in a V-shaped formation over a front of two kilometres, with the fighters hiding behind bushes and tree stumps and rocks. Some had even dug small foxholes. Kufut systematically raked all these possible zones of protection with constant fire, crisscrossing and doubling back once they'd zoomed through a position. The insurgents stopped firing and began to flee. After sweeping the area, 34 bodies were found. All were left where they lay. The security forces wanted the Untag observers to inspect. However, none ever did. As I explained last episode, the UN was far away, mostly at the SADF and SWATF bases. They had no real interest in heading out into the bush to see for themselves. 
Kufud had suffered through this ambush. Three special constables were dead. Nine others were wounded in Kazavak. Six vehicles were damaged, three beyond repair. The Swapo insurgents were carrying leaflets which were supposed to be placed on the dead security force bodies, indicating they were taking revenge on the police for their actions in Avambaland. Swatev's 102 battalion was in the throes of being disbanded, based nearby at Apur in Kaukaland. They and 101 battalion members were now being recalled. They had also mostly gone home in Avambaland, but could be called back using Radio Avambo. It wasn't possible to call the members of 102 battalion. Kaukaland is one of the most remote places on earth. The only radio signals that made it into that area were BBC, Radio Moscow and Voice of America. The 102 battalion members were mostly Himbas, who lived as their ancestors had. Very few had radios. At Oshikati, three Rekis, Lieutenant Dinas de Klerk, Captain Chris Kluti and Sergeant Barand Nell were at the Kufud base. They heard about the fighting and volunteered to help. A few other Reiki operators were also in Novamberland, disguised as security branch police. They also joined up. Then, as the diplomatic fallout began, the security forces were going to be hard-pressed over the next few days. It was imperative they check on Kalkwedam, which the security forces duly did on April 2nd, but there they spotted insurgents poor more than 50 men. Kufut members were mobilized here and eventually came across another 50. There were now more than 100 planned fighters who had converged just there alone. Things were looking ominous. The trackers said these men were around eight hours ahead that crossed into Namibia at 0200 that morning. Two alouettes were called in, and it wasn't long before the insurgents ambushed the Kufut convoy. Two caspers were knocked out, killing two special constables and wounding a commander. The gunships arrived, but Swapu had a nasty surprise. They began firing SAM-7 missiles, the Strela. But the alouettes were too low and the missiles missed. The Kufut Caspers deployed in their well-known milling technique, moving back and forth, which also confused alouette pilots who were used to a more organized technique that was designed to avoid friendly fire. Large groups of insurgents were spotted. The battle raged for some time before the alouettes had shot off all the ammunition. By now, the insurgents had stopped firing and were hiving off in different directions. At least 11 security force members were wounded. More casualties were reported later, and a puma arrived to Kazavak those men. It also brought ammunition for the Alouettes and the security forces. Time for the follow-up. As the police advanced, they began to pick up weapons, including SAM-7s, that had been thrown away. One by one, the insurgents were picked off. Twenty-seven were killed, but the rest escaped. The war material collected was considerable, including RPGs, 82mm mortar tubes and shells, ammunition, grenades and a large quantity of other equipment. A short while later, near Itali, insurgents ambushed a security force Casper. Seven Caspers were hit by a barrage of RPGs and anti-tank grenades. 24-year-old Sarol Fantonda died fighting hand-to-hand with planned guerrillas, despite his wounds. Four other special constables also died. The police follow-up led to five planned fighters being caught and shot. All men then returned to Ivali. It wasn't wise to continue tracking during the night. Across Kaukaland and Avambaland, this sort of fighting was reported. One of the most extreme, if you can compare these things, took place near Beacon 29. Around 30 police vehicles were on the move following at least 100 insurgents. Some of the cars were now carrying 5.0 Brownings and 20 mil cannon, and that was fortunate considering what was going to happen. Sergeant Johann Bosch was aboard Zulu Lima, Sergeant Hermann Grobler on Zulu Foxtrot, and a number of constables in charge of the other Caspers and armoured vehicles. The spoor was strange. 
They could see there was no attempt being made to hide the tracks when they came across a few small homesteads. The civilians ran out and told the security forces to head back. There were too many Swapo to try and fight. Groble eventually called a halt when it became clear that the spoor had broken up. There was also a sign of donkeys being used by Swapo. That meant they could be carrying really heavy anti-tank guns and a large amount of ammunition. The security forces climbed aboard their vehicles to continue approaching the planned insurgents when Swapo opened fire with their mortars, RPGs, machine guns and pretty much everything they had. Six Caspers were knocked out immediately, most of the men inside killed and wounded. The planned fighters kept up a constant fire. Alouettes landed to assist. It was a real mess. The fight went on for well over an hour, with the security force members pinned down. Sergeant Hermann Grobler's Casper had been hit by an RPG, and some of his electrics were on fire. Smoke hung in the air. He'd also been hit by shrapnel, but it was only when he felt dizzy and slumped down from the turret that he realized most of his right leg was missing from below the knee. Another sergeant alongside was also missing a leg. Most of his men were dead, but the fighting continued, so he and a survivor, Sergeant Mangala, were left to defend themselves. He dragged himself back into the turret and opened fire on his attackers with a 20mm cannon, but it jammed after only a few shots, so he grabbed the twin fiber caliber Brownings and fired short bursts until that ammunition ran out. As the tide of battle moved away from the Casper, Krobler dropped back to the cabin where Mangala had been fighting firing through the ports at their attackers. Krobler was a trained medic and realized that he was now bleeding to death. He needed to cut off the remaining bits of tissue holding his lower leg so he could close up the wound. Mangala had first refused to hand over his knife, knowing what Krobler planned to do, but thinking it was madness. Eventually, he gave in after Krobler explained and waved his gun around, and Sergeant Krobler sawed off the bits remaining below his own knee dressed his own wound, and then inserted a drip. Then he lay back. His amputated leg was found later. Those who picked it up said it must have belonged to a Cuban, because it was white. Six security force men had died in this battle. Nineteen were wounded. Twenty insurgents had died. 101 battalion troops were recalled. The alerts were broadcast across Vumberland on the local radio. Men began to drift in and report for duty. By the 3rd of April, spare vehicles were found and the heavy weapons were placed on the Caspers and other armoured cars. The hospital at Ondangwe Air Force Base reported later it had handled 57 battle casualties on April 1st, the busiest day it had ever had in decades of war. By Monday, April 3rd, the security forces were on the offensive. A signal calling for volunteers had gone out to SAP stations inside South Africa, ex-members of Coin and Kufut phoned in and joined up. When Sam Nyoma ordered his men to regroup and withdraw under Untag's support to be escorted out of Namibia on the 8th of April, the South Africans were unconvinced by his word and stopped the implementation of Resolution 435. A curfew was reintroduced and all Area Force units were reactivated. The Joint Monitoring Commission, which included Pretoria, Havana and Luanda officials, met at a game ranch at Mount Echo, with Washington and Moscow watching. They then signed the April 9th Mount Etro Declaration, where all parties agreed to the existing peace agreement and that planned insurgents would withdraw to nine border assembly points maintained by UNTAG forces to be in place there by the 11th of April, then to be transported above the 16th parallel in Angola. Planned insurgents would be given a week's grace to arrive at these assembly points, while the SADF said it would not attack unless they were attacked first. 
Only a few Swapa arrived at these points, with most choosing to cross the border on their own, not trusting the declaration, and more planned insurgents would die because of this. The JMC met in northern Namibia on the 20th of April, and it was agreed that SADF and SWATF units could return to their bases in seven days. Then on the 26th of April, this was carried out. And SADF and SWATF units were confined to their bases for three days to allow planned insurgents to leave Namibia and to return to Angola. The South Africans released 34 captured insurgents. The final death toll officially reached 306 planned insurgents. On the South African side, 20 police had died, along with five SADF SWATF soldiers, and more than 100 were wounded. There was another scare in May, with Pretoria believing SWAPO planned an invasion then, but it never happened. So by the end of June, the SADF had withdrawn all its troops, except 1,500 soldiers confined to their bases at Grootfontein and Oshibelo. These would remain there until a week after the announcement of the election results set for five days between 7th and 11th November. Namibia is vast, and it was hoped that the five days would give everyone a chance to vote. Ballot counting began on the 13th of November. By the 14th of November 1989, UN Special Representative for Namibia, Marty Asasari, declared the election free and fair and announced the result. Swapo was the winner with 57.3%, the Democratic Donhala Alliance 28.6%, United Democratic Front 5.6%, and the Action Christian National Front received 3.5%. The last 1,500 South African soldiers were withdrawn from Namibian bases at Grootfontein and Oshibelo by the 21st of November 1989. On the 21st of March 1990, an independence ceremony was held in the Namibian capital, Windhoek. In attendance was South African President F.W. de Klerk, who watched the lowering of the South African flag and the raising of the new Namibian flag. Then the new Namibian president, Sam Nyoma, was sworn in by UN Secretary General Peres de Kwea. Despite teetering at the last minute, the peace had held. A last-ditch attempt by Sam Nyoma to force a military coup and his brand of Marxism had failed. He could not overthrow the state through force, and was now part of a new administration that was tasked with reconciling all Namibians. Untag, despite its many shortfalls, had just about managed to sign off on what was, until then, the biggest, most complex project. Politically, the fact that the South Africans had been holding on to Namibia way beyond the period accepted by the international community is another story. When we started this series, I spent some time explaining how successive South African governments, whether Jan Smuts's South African Party or Milan's National Party, viewed Southwest Africa as a fifth province. Pretoria had fought to retain Namibia and the crucial strategic port of Volfus Bay and lost. The fallout may have secondary repercussions for the ruling ANC these days. I've spent a lot of time documenting new highways from Central Africa through northern Botswana to Volfus Bay. The Namibian government's stated plan is to remove ports like Durban as important from the world's lists of vital entrepots. Volfus Bay is much closer to the European trading hubs to the United States. It's thousands of miles closer. With Richards Bay essentially a commodity trading port and Cape Town a reliable refueling destination, and the Johannesburg region facing economic and infrastructure challenges, Durban's position is now threatened. Given the ANC's infighting, particularly in the KwaZulu-Natal region, this could cause a significant economic and political problem for the ANC post-Zuma as the political party faces 
an increasingly militant Zulu electorate. Both the ANC and Swapo long for the nostalgic days of struggle when they were fated on the world stage as heroic populists. These days, both the ANC and Swapo are facing the erosion of trust that comes with corruption. Both face elections in 2024 in the weakest state they've been since they fought their respective wars. Support for the ANC peaked at nearly 70% in the third democratic election in 2009, but by the fifth election in 2019, it had fallen to 57.5%. For both the ANC and Swapu, the loss of control over the regional, provincial and local levels of government has turned their politics into a matter of alliances with shifting coalitions. Politics has become a negotiated commodity. Swapu's electoral prospects are less bleak than the ANC's, with its first woman president likely in the wings, Natembu Nandi Ndaitwa. Overall, Southern African liberation movement's loss of popularity is overlaid with accusations they have betrayed their promises of freedom, they have wasted civilians' money, they have displayed a democratic deficit. The relationship between the ANC and Swapo is complex. During the struggle against the party, the ANC could not use Namibia as a base, and after Swapo took over in 1989, the ANC was not welcomed back into Windhoek. The unease felt about South Africa's size and economic hold of Namibia remains a core area of tension, with Namibia importing 97% of its processed agricultural products from South Africa. And just to mention quickly that Swapu's liberation politics were initially largely inspired by China, at a time when Soviet influence became a dominant ideological anchor for the ANC. While Swapu's military wing plan was regarded as much more effective in the war for liberation than the ANC's MK, Post-independence relations are ambivalent. Namibia and Assam Nyoma led to overreach, particularly when the now-dead Swapo leader had a go at South Africa for continuing to dominate his economy. South Africa's economy is still three times the size of all other Southern African economies combined. Despite the human rights abuses that had occurred in Swapo's camps in Angola, Namibia has refused to follow the South African example and appoint a Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a way to start healing the wounds of war. Furthermore, while Namibia's constitutional framework posits a democratic dispensation, the country's leadership has not grounded the foreign policy in democratic values and has vacillated on human rights. South Africa has begun to do the same. And like Namibia, South Africa has suffered numerous corruption scandals. In Namibia, for example, the fish rot case, Swapo's leaders and their associates have become effective upper-class dispensers of public resources mineral licenses, fishing quotas, resettlement of large communal farms, public service jobs, public service contracts, just like South Africa. Perhaps the most mysterious friend that Namibia has is North Korea. Russia has basically withdrawn from its plans to get more involved in sales to Namibia, and about a quarter of all Namibia's exports go to Europe. Russia has a negligible trade with that country. The North Koreans built Heroes Acre, Namibia's State House, the Military Museum at Okanja, the Independence Museum, an ammunition factory, and other military installations, all without a public tender process. South Africa may be increasingly marginalized as these military, economic, and social ties continue unraveling over the next few decades. Well, I'm going to take a break for a couple of days, and when I'm back, I'll start looking at some of the special force operations that I missed over the course of this series. And also we'll focus a little more on Mozambique. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. 
or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Till next, goodbye.